Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week is a coffee talk episode, so it's just Dennis and I sitting down, having a cup of coffee. Uh, Basically, we got snowed in on Friday, so I decided, let's sit down and have a little chat, and I asked him all about his doctoral dissertation that he did. Uh, We also talked a little bit about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up, and we even have another contest. So listen at the end of the episode for our new contest. And without further ado, another Coffee Talk episode of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Your hair looks very soft and fluffy today. Did you not put any gel in it? I did, so um, when I put gel in my hair... No, that's That's a podcast. When I put gel in my hair... It uh, it will it will look like it's uh, like still wet. But then you run your fingers through it like a will, yeah. fashion model coming out of the yeah, ocean. I don't know. I'm new to like putting stuff in my hair. I've never. Oh. Whenever I go to the, get my hair cut, they're like, "Do you want any product?" And I was like, "Well, just the fact now I, you're the man. You need product in your hair." <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, okay, so this is the uh, coffee serenity prayer. Have you ever heard this? I have not. Okay, let me try to open this here. I saw this one time, and I was like, man, I want to read this on the Coffee Talk episode. Oremus. Caffeine, come to my assistance. (laughs) No? (laughs) Too far? (laughs) Well, if anybody's already offended, we're just having fun. We're not attacking the Catholic faith. We're both very (laughs) committed to it. And caffeine, come to my assistance, yes. Okay, this is, I'm trying to read this off of another mug. I couldn't find the direct, uh, just a text version of it. But it says, Lord, give us coffee to change the things worth changing and wine to accept the things we can't. I like it. There you go. Are you did a wine drinker? Not really, no. But we, did we talk about the Devil's Cup here before? No, what's the Devil's Cup? It's a book about coffee that I read a long time ago now. It's just a little book. Uh, it's called A History of the World According to Coffee. It's not a history of coffee, although there is a history of coffee in there, but it's a history of the world according to coffee. And one of the things I remember is the author figured out proposed that in the Middle Ages, they were all drinking ale all the time. Mm-hmm. And so they were sitting around contemplating, kind of groggy, you know. But in the Enlightenment, that's when coffee came from the New World, and the Enlighten- Enlightenment philosophical... Philosophical? <laughs> Coffee's gone so yeah, Right. The I don't think that's coffee, Dennis. <laughs> the Enlightenment <laughs> philosophical world was staying up in coffee houses all night and getting hyper-caffeinated. Mm-hmm. And so... They went from groggy contemplation of the mysteries to got to figure out everything in the world. Got to figure it out. Got to figure it out. Coffee, 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 buzz. So he thinks that the uh, enlightenment came about in part due to coffee. Uh, oh, I think, I don't know if we mentioned that on like another podcast. But I tell that story from time to time. No, so but, I may have said I, it. but maybe you did say that. That is fascinating to me. So, so he's saying that coffee changed the way that we think. Yeah. And we think about things and think about thinking. We'd go to coffee houses and argue with people and stay up all night and talk and that kind of stuff. I remember when I was working on Catholic Church Architecture and the Spirit of the Liturgy, the oldie architectural book. Is that a book that you wrote? It is a book that I wrote. You guys should buy that book. And um, a friend of mine 
lent me his beach house and I went for a week and I was there by myself for an entire week, which is kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. So I'd get up in the morning and I would make an entire pot of coffee. I mean, the whole thing, like 15 cups. I love it already. And then I would drink, drink, drink a lot of it. And then I would work a little bit. Then I had the Liturgy of the Hours with me and I do that. And I would just walk around the house like hyper, walking in circles, singing, oh God, come to my assistance. I'll let my kids to help me just all by myself. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go out to mass and then I'd come back and I would drink more coffee and then I would eat lunch and then I would drink more coffee. And it was like, tap, 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 all these ideas racing through my head. I felt like the Holy Spirit was on my shoulder just whispering. I got two entire chapters done in those four or five days. And the coffee was an essential element of it. Ooh, what are you, are you drinking coffee right now? Uh, yes. Okay, what type of coffee are you drinking? It's uh, something from the Keurig, whatever it was. Oh, okay. Colombian. Was it the dark oil. roast or the medium roast? I went dark roast. I think I'm only medium. This is my second giant mug of coffee today. <laughs> ah. uh, but you, sometimes you drink water and you say that gives you energy. You just drink like a quart of water at in like that, the minutes. most hyper I've ever been was when I drank a whole quart of water all in one sitting. Like 15 minutes that, later, wow. it was just, I don't know. Sometimes people drink coffee because they're tired or they've eaten a lot of sugar and their bodies are you know, having a hard time digesting it all. Mm -hmm. You just get that water going. It just seems like all of the chemical reactions just bing, bing, bing. Wow. I've, I've never tried it, but I guess uh, you say that it works. Um, anyway, uh, before we talk about some other nonsense or whatever, mm -hmm. um, I wanted to talk about the Transfigured Conference that we're doing this summer. We haven't really explained what it is or why we're doing what we're doing, but yeah. it's the, the second. The website is btransfigured.com. Yeah, you be can go to the website. Be, be You're going to get more information from this conversation real quick before, you know, then you will get on the website. This was your brilliant idea, Jesse. Let's oh, give well, you credit you. where credit is due. I usually like to hog it to myself, but this time I will give the credit to you. Oh, well, thank you very much. Since you are, are you 30 yet? Oh, yeah. You're 30, not yeah. 31 though. No, I'm 33. You're three? Oh, see, so you're still in touch with the young adult crowd. I'm yeah. sort of a middle-aged adult now. When you're 33, everybody says, oh, that's the age Jesus was when right. he died. I know, so it's all downhill. Yeah, right, now. exactly. Um, but so you thought, hey, these young adults, there's a lot of need for catechesis, for understanding of the liturgy. Let's have a young adult liturgy conference. Mm -hmm. And so we did it last year. and what, It was great. 250 people came down at yep. St. Alphonsus Church in Chicago. Yeah, we had, it was just a one-day event, but we had two lectures in the morning and two lectures in the afternoon. And we and had our crew from Vanderbilt there. Yeah. Remember? The guys from Vanderbilt. And uh, then we had closing mass. Oh, we had solemn uh, vespers. And closing mass with Cardinal. closing mass with the Cardinal. Cardinal. Yeah. I don't think he was a Cardinal at the time, was he? Maybe he was. At the very least, Archbishop. Yeah, that's true. That's mm -hmm. a default. So, but this year, we're going bigger, bigger and better. Yeah, definitely bigger, definitely better. This is going to be seven lectures, and it's more of a study weekend. We, yeah. we did a Let's survey. not think of it as lectures, though. Let's think of it as exciting Classes, engagement yeah. with our liturgical institute faculty. You don't, it doesn't sound like your coffee's kicked in yet, Jesse. <laughs> oh, I started this 45 <laughs> minutes ago to be ready now. Oh, okay. In 30 I'll minutes, you're going to wake up. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, we modeled this after some of the classes that we actually have here on campus, aside from a couple visiting uh, professors that we have here. But the, the idea is to go bigger. And the reason we did that is because the surveys that we sent out after, so some of you may have come to the conference last year and you may have filled out the survey that we sent, but a lot of people wanted uh, two things. They wanted more and they wanted to be in an environment that they could sit and write notes and socialize and have more time right. networking. So we were I in a theater that, last time and had theater seats that didn't have little desks or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess socializing was the third thing. So we added more socializing too. So uh, 
we we did we made this bigger we made it better there's more more information for you to to learn there are seven different uh presentations for you one of them is going to be amazing it's drinking with the saints they're all going to be amazing but drinking <laughs> drinking with the saints is uh dr michael foley uh from baylor and he's going to talk about the liturgy of drinking he wrote this book called drinking with the saints and he has a cocktail that is for every feast day, every saint's feast day throughout the liturgical calendar. And so we're going to listen to his presentation, and then we're going to taste some of those cocktails afterwards. And I have to say, when I first, before I heard this talk, I was a little suspicious. I was like, is this just some kind of like mm-hmm. drinking excuse to drink? Like and a gimmick. People got Catholic a nervous, gimmick. but what about alcoholics and so on? But he, it's actually a very theological thing. You know, festivity and celebration are things associated with liturgical feasts. You mm-hmm. enjoy food and drink on Christmas and Easter and so on. And so in the tradition, before we all became Puritans, there were drinks and food associated with um, particular saints. I remember he said even the clinking of glasses, and we say, you know, sante or salute or whatever. Yeah, and cheers, that, that, toasting, that, all that That was um, an invocation of the bells ringing around the throne of God. Wow. <laughs> Things like that you would never think of. So it's surprisingly interesting. It's not just an excuse to be decadent. Absolutely. Decadent. Yeah, so so it's it's the whole weekend. It's filled with with all this great information. And it's on our campus. Here. It's on our campus here. A thousand acres, uh, a huge lake, forest there. Every time I drive into work on campus, I see deer leaping over the road and squirrels and birds. And it's going to be in the summer, so it's going to be our real beautiful. Beautiful chapel. Our summer school will be going, so our cantors and our scola will be. Singing. Yeah, we're gonna have like a full music. I know the. Uh the music in the summer is just amazing, so to have everybody else join us would be really great. So it's, it's going to be a really prime time to see what the Liturgical Institute really is like to study here, and what our campus is like, what our students are like. You you are going to have an amazing time. Um, the only thing that's different about this, Dennis, is, is that we don't have as many spots available. That's right. Yeah. So... It's really capped around 150, and that's just because of the rooms that we have. That the classrooms, can, yeah. Yep, the classrooms and, and the housing. But it's, a, it's really well-priced. Uh, we did a lot of research and talked to a lot of people about where our pricing should be. For a mere $4,000. Four grand. No, no, no. Uh, no you, don't, you don't get any credit, but no. Uh, so $300 if you have just yourself... And uh, that's the early bird price. And that includes housing, registration, all the meals. All, all the meals. Ev- basically everything, 300 mm-hmm. bucks. We should make it 299 Some cocktails, 99. we throw some cocktails. Yeah, 299 <laughs> Three easy payments. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you can barely stay at a, a hotel for two nights for $300 sometimes today. So that's all, the, all of those presentations, all the classes, all of the meals, and your room, and all of that. So... If you want to register for that, I, I would recommend doing it soon because we will sell out. And uh, you can go to, <clears throat> oh, I pulled a real Chris there. Uh, you can go to www.betransfigured.com. B-E-T-R-A-N-S-F-I-G-U-R-E-D. That was good. That was yeah. really good. This I is <laughs> this is the caffeine. You, you got me all hyped up, and here I am. I'm really obnoxious when I'm... Uh, but anyway, if you want to find out more... Uh, you know, you can you can email us, you can call us. Uh, we'll we'll give you some more information about it. But we want to accommodate the needs that you have. But mostly, we want you to get more out of the information that we put out the Liturgical Institute. This podcast is great, but uh, these these classes, these courses that you'll have when you come up here are going to be really amazing. And it's more than just Dennis and Chris 
here. Not that anybody could imagine right. anything with <laughs> and Chris, but the other speakers are Father Karchi, who's, Father Karchi, who's yep. the rector here, and he's an actual priest with two earned doctorates, one in scripture and one in astrophysics, believe it or not. Yeah. He's so, a racket scientist. Word of God in liturgy. He's, <laughs> he's an actual literal racket scientist. <laughs> uh, he's going to talk about scripture, and then Dr. Lynn Bouton, who is a very interesting person, has all kinds of interesting things. And Bishop Perry. Ma- and Bishop Perry will talk mm-hmm. about the value of liturgical tradition and celebrate the Mass on Sunday morning. And Father Bema. And Father Bema, who is an expert in East-West Christianity and, and yeah, ecumenical ta- relations. We talked about him in the last coffee talk. He's biritual. And I, I was asking him about why that was the case. And he told me that um, there was one Byzantine uh, rite or order or I don't know how to, how to call them. Liturgical family? No. I don't community. I don't, yeah, community or whatever that was in Chicago that made it out of uh, of Europe, I think, mm-hmm. and they made their home here, and they ended up not having any pastor, and they and they and Father Bema uh-huh. said him and another priest decided to learn uh, the rites and learn the liturgies and become by ritual so that they could provide pastoral support for the community for the Byzantine community. So very interesting. But like you said, also, I mean, Father Bema, he's off doing all these amazing things. In the Vatican. And, and yeah. Ecumenical relation meetings all over the place. Absolutely. So a lot of really great stuff coming out of that conference, and you can register, betransfigured.com. Um, but today, Dennis, yes. for this coffee talk. I don't know episode, what we're going to talk about. I have no idea. I think idea. I do. I, well, you may know, but yeah, I don't. I just have a question for you, really. Well, and this question, may you may answer it right away, or it may take some time. I, well, I, I want to speculate that it would take more than just a couple of sentences. But my question for you is, I want to know what you wrote your dissertation on. Oh, you. my goodness. You're the yeah. only person in the world who's <laughs> ever asked me that question. You know, the old joke is when you defend your dissertation, you have a committee, and it's usually four people, five this people. This is probably a joke I never have heard, but keep going. Well, you have five people on the committee, right? So theoretically, they've all read it, and they have to ask you questions and stuff. So before I went over to the defense, somebody said to me, enjoy this next hour, because it's the only time in your life you'll be in the same room with two people who've read your doctoral dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the classic thing, is that every, all the professors are so busy, they kind of skim stuff and make up questions. And that was my experience, I have to say, that they asked mm-hmm. some really shallow, obvious questions, indicating they hadn't really read it. And, oh. uh, but you know what? You get it done. Better to be approved than uh, poked in Right, and really, you're really doing that research for yourself and your interest in what you're doing, not just to pass and get your degree. Well, right. My doctoral defense, my doctoral advisor was um, Richard Guy Wilson, teaches at the University of Virginia still. He's um, expert on all kinds of things. But he kind of shepherded me through. He said, who do you want in your committee? And I gave a name and he kind of furrowed an eyebrow and said, "Mm -mm." oh, really? (laughs) And then I said, how about this one? He said, Okay. I think he just knew who was difficult and who wasn't. And so, oh, okay. His name was w- Wilson, of course. You know, Mr. Owen Guy. Wilson? No, Richard, oh. Richard Guy Wilson. But at okay. UVA, they don't call them doctor, they call them Mr. or Ms. So he was Mr. Wilson. I was Dennis, and he was Mr. Wilson. What's coming to mind oh, there? Oh, man. Dennis the Menace. Menace. Right, so. You know, I never thought Mr. about Wilson. that joke with you. Oh, that's great. Oh, Dennis. <laughs> and he kind of talked like this, too. So he was very nice. <laughs> he wasn't grouchy, like. Mr. Oh Wilson. man, I love that. That's so, a good movie, by the way. The Dennis the Menace movie. Oh yeah, oh yeah, terrific. Yeah, yeah. I was more of a menace back then. 
But anyway, the topic was on American church architecture in the years between World War One and World War Two. That is pretty specific. It is, but it's also a very particular period because... What's that, two decades? One uh, decade? Just about. I mean, it was really 1910 to 1940, so mm-hmm. um, a little longer than that interwar period. But that, you know, in the 19th century, there was kind of a pioneer architecture in a lot of ways. A lot We didn't really have highly trained craftsmen or highly trained architects. There were some, but not as many. After World War I, though, America had this collective consciousness increased in wealth in the 20s, and they sent architects to Rome and to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in France, the School of Fine Arts there, this famous architecture school. And they had really if it's high so famous, how come I haven't heard of it? Uh, well, that's what as I the thought. priest I know said, it says something about you and something about them. Oh, so, man. Uh, L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts, right? So anyway... If, if you've ever seen any big white classical post offices or banks from the 1920s or these big classical buildings like our own campus here, that's called the Beaux-Arts method. It's big Roman-inspired classical, sometimes Gothic too. All right, the Beaux-Arts method. But anyway, it was this period of um, real, really great achievement in architecture. The, some of the finest ecclesiastical work really ever in the U.S. came in that period. So you were studying just churches or? Yes, it was church architecture in those, in those years. But, you know, it was interesting then is we think, oh, we go to church and there's a church. But they were thinking a little differently because they were living in the era of movies for the first time and cars and radio and um, jazz. Podcasts? Well, no podcasts yet, but oh, the, okay. same, you know, the same questions we have. Um, they were thinking, well, if, you know, if people are out playing cards and smoking on Saturday night, you know, are they going to be... Um, you know, ready for church the next day. And in certain puritanical strains of Christianity, not just Catholicism, you know, smoking was a no-no, cards were a no-no. And Wait, you couldn't play cards? Like even just like, no, not, po- not gambling, no, but like... Just cards, just, a, lot of, a lot of the puritanical strains of Christianity. That's was, just uh, good old-fashioned fun. Well, that's how we think of it now, but back then it was, it was a big deal. Also, oh my goodness. Golf was kind of invented at this time. Not invented, but became popular in the U.S. And so people were saying, wow, people are going to play golf on Sunday instead of going to church. And the cars could bring them away from church. It used to be that if you were stuck in your farmhouse alone with your family, you would go to church on Sunday. It's the only time in the week you could see your neighbors and talk and hear and listen and interact. Mm-hmm. Well, suddenly if everybody has cars, everybody can go all over the place. And it's the beginning of the modern condition that we're so used to now. So they had this crisis about church attendance. Well, who's going to go to church anymore? Are the numbers going up or the numbers going down? And they had this notion that they had to do something about churches to make them better. This sounds really familiar to me. Keep it going. It sounds familiar. Have you read my dissertation? No, it sounds like, what's, like what we're on the verge of right now oh, is like, oh, oh, again, you know, because yep. I, I, you know, it's not, it's not uh, golf and cards and radio and car and cars. It's social media, it's like really any other thing that distracts us from what we want to consider to be valuable spiritually. Right. And so it sounds like kind of we're at the cusp of this again, because there are people out there who want to build beautiful churches again and really bring back people with beauty. But but go ahead. Keep well, that's going. right. And you know, many of the Protestant denominations in the 19th century were uh, building the kind of empty white interior that we expect from what we call a meeting house or, you know, a more puritanical notion. So you had Baptists, for instance, who wouldn't be caught dead with a statue or a stained glass window in 1890. But in 1920, they're building Gothic revival churches with stained glass windows of Luther in them, right? You know, Luther Mm -hmm. and Calvin and Zinzendorf and all the Protestant anti-image Protestants suddenly are in (laughs) images in stained glass in the windows. Wait, is that real? Yeah. 
So if you go to certain of these, there's a pulpit and there'll be statues on it. And if it were a medieval like Catholic... The, there are statues and stained glass windows of, of Luther? anti-image Lutheran reformers. No way. <laughs> and even Luther wasn't as hard on images as Calvin and Zwingli and some of the other wow. ones who came later. So it's a very interesting time where Protestants reappropriate all this traditional architecture. And I hope the they're not is, worshiping those why? images. No, no, not at all. They see the more <laughs> historical figures. Or um, There was a guy down in the University of Chicago named Von Ogden Vogt, V-O-G-T was his last name, and he uh, was big on this idea that Protestants had thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it came to art and architecture. And they did, he said, you don't have to accept the real presence of the Eucharist or the Pope or anything, but you could have a nice church. And so <laughs> you see, uh, for the first time, these kind of highly developed, medieval-inspired, Gothic, stained glass, wrought iron wood carving Protestant churches. It's this really is interesting. Kind of reminds me of what you were talking about with Paul Tillich. Yep. And the, you know, like just the the waffling of trying to figure out what what is beautiful and what we can do and what we can't do. And it just kind of strikes me as the consistency of the Catholic Church has always said, you know, what we can do and what we cannot do and what is beautiful and what is not beautiful. And Well, we have a consistent sacramental theology. Right, exactly. But if you don't believe in a sacramental theology, as we talked about in the Tillich episode a few episodes ago, then, well, what are you doing this image for? Just because it's more interesting than not having one? Or is it making a saint knowable to you? And in mm-hmm. fact, Tillich taught at, um, was it Theological Union? In up, upper uh, West Side of New York, which was one of these Gothic revival churches from that period. Wow. Protestant Gothic church. And he talks about how he was um, almost persuaded by the beauty of this building. And then his reason kicked in and he realized it was all a lie and he was being seduced into something <laughs> false. He, like a game of cards. Well, yeah. That's what all... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny that one of the preachers... This All this stuff was in the newspaper. So like back then, you know, Protestant ministers in the famous churches in New York City would give these sermons and they'd be printed in the New York Times every week. And so you would see these news stories. And uh, one of the preachers said, now we're being seduced by Lady Nick Oteen, like, like an Irish name, oh. O-T-E-E-N, <laughs> Lady Nick Oteen, Lady Nicotine, yeah. And so uh, it was kind of a, a big deal. Wow. Okay, so, so you're talking about the churches that were built between World War I and World War II, mm-hmm. and there was kind of a revival of, of sorts, but because people had access to information about architecture that they didn't before, is that right? Well, they had the information before, but they had better architects, better craftsmanship, better everything. I think one of the things that they were all worried that Christianity was in decline. And they were kind of in this mode of, what do we do about it? And one of the things was better, more beautiful churches. Because if you think about it, you grew up in New York City and you had a bunch of little row houses and a little wooden church. Okay, fine. Then suddenly they built the Chrysler building next to your little wooden church and you're, whoa. Or Radio City Music Hall or some great Uh movie palace or some high school that looks like a Gothic mansion from Tudor England. And it's like, our church is now the least interesting building in the city. It's not important anymore, yeah. And so how do we compete with it? We can't make a hundred story church like they did in uh, the the Chrysler building, but they can do a really exquisitely beautiful church. But then they did make some hundred story churches, or not hundred, but mm-hmm. there was an, one of the other chapters of a dissertation was called the skyscraper church movement. Yeah. There's one in Chicago. Yep. The Chicago Methodist, Methodist temple. Yeah. Yep. yep. And there were others in other places. The most famous one is it's a sad story actually was a one in New York city it was called the Broadway temple. And for years and years and years, this leading evangelical preacher wanted to build this tall building 
uh, church to make it taller, the tallest building in Manhattan at the time, to have a pool in it and bowling alleys and places for stu- you know, students to live and a big, beautiful church at the bottom. And he raised all this money and dug a hole in the ground for, a, I think it was a four-story basement and put everything in there. And then the depression hit and boom, oh, it was no. done. So the guy who wanted the tallest building in the city wound up with a church underground. The, low, the <laughs> lowest, lowest building in the city. <laughs> well, it was a depression in the ground. Well, exactly. It was a depression <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, but there were some built. And, you know, it's a very interesting thing is that they were in the 20s and they were marketing the skyscraper church and they were borrowing money from banks and having business models and office towers in between. And then what happened in the depression is nobody wanted those offices anymore. So the banks come in and they repossess, repossess the church because they're the ones who lent them the money to build this tall building in Manhattan. And suddenly they, they get thrown out of their building on Christmas Eve and stories like that. So it was a, a movement that if you got in early and were done before the crash, you were okay. But if mm-hmm. you didn't, then you were out of luck. But those aren't really created anymore. And in fact, now... There are, especially in Chicago, there are some of these, you know, old, beautiful churches that don't really have a parish community anymore and that are starting to be, you know, decommissioned and, you know, sold off and things like that, which is unfortunate. But, you know, if there's not enough uh, Catholics in the area that are going to Mass, you have these huge churches right. where, like, 100 people are going on a weekend how do you sustain that? And well, that's right. You know, it's a very uh, one-to-one relationship between the body of Christ as the members who live there and the church building. You know, all the documents of the church say the church building signifies the people. And we've talked about that before, you know, this mystical mm-hmm. uniting of the people of the mystical body of Christ as members and they're all united into the image of Christ. And the church building's that. Well, guess what? When the people aren't there anymore, the building starts to go into decay. And when there's nobody there, it just falls apart. And then when people come back, it comes back. It's this really kind of almost mystical way that the, the building relates to the presence isn't, of its people. Isn't there, you may not know this, or, but I've heard there was an old cathedral in New York. I don't know if it's Catholic. That ended up becoming like, uh, a club, like a rave. Oh yeah, yeah. It was. It was not a Catholic church, but oh, okay. uh, what's it called? Studio? No, not Studio Fifty Four. Was it? Anyway, the limelight. But, it's called the limelight. Oh, okay. Yeah, but there are a number exists, of those. Yeah, now. yeah. Um, because it's it's a big open room, and you, mm-hmm. you take out the pews, and you can kind of have it that way. There was another um, one of these skyscraper churches in New York City that the church part closed, and I was looking around during the research, and it's now it was then called in 2000 or so, Le Bar Bat, B-A-T. And it it was called The Bat, but in French it was Le Bar, Mm -hmm. The Bar. (laughs) And over the door, which was once the church, was this big ghoulish kind of Halloween bat. (laughs) That's what they were using it for. Oh, I have a question. I I know we're getting a a little off topic, but that's kind of the point of these things. There's no topic Uh, in coffee talk. uh, What's the deal with gargoyles on churches? Mmm, gargoyles. Does, what is does the word gargle sound like anything yeah. to you? <laughs> yeah. Gar- Sounds like Homer Simpson. <laughs> the, word, the word gurgle, okay. gargle, and gargoyle are all related. And um, that's because, uh, properly speaking, a gargoyle is a stone animal or something on a church that's hollow, and it directs water off of a, of a roof of a church. So it has an open mouth, say, and then the water comes down the gutter or whatever and then spews out the mouth of the church. That's why it's called a gargoyle. But usually they're kind of unhappy-looking demonic yeah. creatures or something. Yeah, what's with that? That's what I want to know. Yeah, you, want the, you don't want the etymology. You want the real story. Well, I don't know that there's a footnotable source anywhere, but my speculation is this. They're usually on the west side of the church, which is the side associated with 
the sun going down. And they're always outside the church. You never see one on the inside. And they're the kind of unhappy creatures who can't get in the heavenly Jerusalem. And they're kind of forced to vomit water <laughs> their whole life. That is pretty intense. And if you are one of the beloved, one of the saved, then you go inside the church and you have this vision of gold and color and stained glass and everything. But if you're not, if you're permanently barred from the eternal salvation, like a demon would be, then you're outside the church and, and they're you look on, unhappy. Only on the west side. Well, not only, but often, yeah. That's really weird. Well, the east and the west is a big deal in Catholic worship because mm-hmm. the sun goes up in the east, comes up in the east, so that's the resurrection, it's the future. It's I thought life. the earth was flat. It says no, something about you and something about them. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, I'm kidding. Nobody I'm wants kidding. to go to darkness, right? So, yeah, that's true. Um, so sometimes in a church, you know, if it would be facing east-west, the south side would be where the sun was all day. So they would put all the mysteries of Christ in the stained glass on the south side, and they would put the Old Testament mysteries on the north because that was the darkness. And wow. so as the sun moved around from east to south to west, it would it'd be a movement of light to dark, even in the building itself. And so the orientation of sun and, and, and darkness is really important. Huh. I never knew that. All right. Back, back to the dissertation. Well, if anybody's made it this far... <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me about my dissertation. <laughs> so were there any specifics to the buildings that were unique to that specific one or two decades that maybe we didn't see before mm-hmm. or we don't see anymore? Absolutely, yeah. Well, first of all, there's a really high level of handcraft. And in the 19th century, you had people making traditional-looking churches, but the Gothic Revival was pretty new at that time. So the Gothic Revival is this mid-19th century movement where particularly in England, but it was also in other places, in Germany and France, where the the collective mind of the people was the Middle Ages was this great period before industrialism and uh, mechanization of things. And sort of, you know, think of your uh, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, Shire kind of existence, right? Mm-hmm. Peaceful, happy, close to the earth. And you have your little country church in England, just like Downton Abbey. Oh, right? okay. man. So... Uh, <laughs> And so the antidote to modernity was going back to the Middle Ages. And so they start looking at old Gothic buildings and copying them. And by then they did a pretty good job, you know, basically reproducing older buildings. But by the 20th century, they had breathed Gothic revival so much in their blood that they could start being creative with it and mixing in little art deco elements or making things taller and more sophisticated, more streamlined, less interested in ornament for ornament's sake and more interested in the ornament as serving the building. So there were wonderful sculptors and woodcarvers and stained glass makers and wrought iron workers at that time. And all the arts came together in these really beautiful assemblages of things. And that's stuff that you don't necessarily see anymore because of industrialization and, and things that can be done mass in, in mass production? Or Well, partly because after that period, after World War II, after the Depression, people got really um, kind of practical. So in 1920, you would see a book called Toward a More, More Beautiful Church or More Theological Church. In 1940, you see a book called Toward a More Efficient Church. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then modernism as an architectural movement completely dominates the architectural field. So traditional architecture just dies. It's gone. And so nobody's building traditional churches. And then the last 10 years, 15 years, people have been kind of scraping together some tree, you know, self-taught understanding. How do you make something traditional? And so the level of understanding of traditional architecture, although it's way better than it was 20 years ago, is still pretty low. And to convince a parish we're going to have handcrafted wrought iron and hand-carved stone, and mm-hmm. it's still kind of beyond what most people want to pay for a church. 
I would argue that an efficient church is one, is one that is uh, properly prepares you to understand you know, the heavenly You're liturgy. You're so postmodern, Jesse. So postmodern. <laughs> post-postmodern or whatever yeah, you are. Post-postmodern, modern. modern. Yeah. Um, well, that's right. You know, for a time there was this notion. And the, remember the, the key aspects of modernity are a dualism. So it's either spiritual or physical. Mm-hmm. It's anti-traditional. It's scientific in origin. And so modernist architecture was like that. You know, it was poured concrete and glass and steel. It was efficient. It was anti-traditional. And um, spiritual was a feeling located in you rather than a thing you encountered in the building mm-hmm. itself. So right now, as a postmodern world, we're saying, yeah, feeling's okay, but I need encounter with something tangible, something that has theological, I'm going to do this, chutzpah, right? Oh, okay. Theological yeah. meat on its bones so that it's not just whatever feeling I feel, this thing actually con- um, affects how I think and then therefore helps me channel my feelings to the right place, which would be to God and not just whatever I think. So when you were when you were writing, was this was there a, a sacramental understanding when you were writing it, or was it just specifically from understanding what was going on architecturally? I'd say it was primarily a sociocultural and architectural approach. So okay. what was in the air? Why were people freaked out about the loss of Christianity's influence in the culture? And then what do they do about it? So there are a couple of different responses. Skyscraper Church is one. The more mm-hmm. traditional church is another. There was also another one called the Seven Day a Week Church, they called it. And that was a church that had a bowling alley and a movie theater and classrooms. What? And yeah, they were all afraid that kids were going to go off in the pool halls and um, and become you know dissolute. <laughs> so they Man, figured. I tell you, this stuff is still happening because you have you have parishes that want that in their like youth group. So they're like, oh. If the kids are going to hang out on their phones, they might as well do it in our living room right. that we built right next to our church. And that's exactly what they said back then. Usually it was mostly Protestants. You know, back then the Catholics were coming and they were all committed to their faith and they had Catholic schools and kind of intact Catholic culture. The Protestants at that time saw their culture, to, you know, sort of disintegrating. Now Catholics are seeing their culture disintegrating as they don't have religious orders and Catholic schools. And so the Catholics are doing now, 100 years later, what Protestants were doing 100 years ago, which is very interesting. And, and so uh, what was the response from kind of the people that were reading your dissertation? Were they receptive to it or they just didn't care as much? I, think I had to wake them up. I'm not sure. <laughs> the response was... <laughs> <laughs> Both of them? Both of the people that ever read your dissertation? <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. History falls in and out of favor too. certain periods of history. So... You have people studying the 19th century architecture because it's old. And then modernists come in and they say, well, you know, modern things are better than history. And so this notion of studying the traditional architecture of the 20th century was off the radar screen because why would you do it? You know, in the 19th century, they didn't know better, they would argue. But by 1925, 1930, they should have known that traditional architecture was the enemy of modernity. And so there were all these architects doing all these beautiful things, libraries, schools, post offices, universities, churches, cathedrals. The biggest Gothic cathedral in the world was started, you know, at this time in St. John the Divine. In I was just going to say, where? In New York City. It's the Episcopal Cathedral of New York City. And uh, nobody ever wrote the history because as soon as they were done building these things, modernism took over. And nobody, that, that stuff was all vilified. That was the bad architecture. Those were the people who refused to get, to the pro, get with the program about modern architecture. So you have hundreds and thousands of traditional and exquisite churches built at this time, and nobody thought they were worth talking about. They're still not in the history books of American architecture. If you pick up a standard 
book, you know, History of American Architecture, they'll just leave that entire period out wow. for the most part. That sucks. And so I saw, man, <laughs> here is this thing. It's a real story. It's very interesting. Lots of great stuff, and nobody's done a darn thing. That's when you say, that's the doctoral dissertation that I want. Did you turn it into a book, or was that part of some of the other books that you wrote? Uh, no, basically I finished and graduated, and then I came to the Liturgical Institute, and I said, someday I'll make a book out of it, and I never have. Wow. But if there are any publishers out there who find this fascinating, <laughs> you can send your book offer to liturg <laughs> questions at liturgyguys.com. <laughs> send your dissertation, and Dennis will read it. <laughs> then you could add one more person. Well, you know, actually, when I was in my last year of graduate school, I applied for a fellowship, doctoral fellowship, and um, they published these things in the Chronicle of Higher Education. So-and-so won fellowship, and, they, and it's the topic and the title of your dissertation is given. So I actually got two unsolicited letters from publishers saying, when you get your dissertation finished, please, please consider us for, as a publisher. Oh, but that's kind of like a thing that they do, though, right? They find people who are writing things. and I guess they figure anybody who gets a doctoral fellowship is probably at the upper tier of quality. So they just, okay, right. let's, let's start with them. And of course, I never did. I still have the letters from 15 years ago. Those editors are probably, you know, dead by now or something. <laughs> well, you don't know. So someday that'll be a project I get to do. Yeah, because if it's still missing from those books, you know, there should be a book about the missing section from the books. I agree with you, Jesse. <laughs> I think I, I agree. You agree with me who agrees with you. So you really yeah. agree, self-agreeant. But I'll tell you about something that happened in the shower. All right. Wait, today or like at some point? In 1998. Okay. Do you hear my heart beating? Yeah, sure. Actually, I think you're just tapping the microphone. Oh, dude. <laughs> I, uh, I, wanted to, I knew I wanted to write about churches and the period, and I, didn't, I couldn't see the big picture. So mm -hmm. I would just go to Architectural Review or Pencil Points, which is one of the magazines from that time, and others, and I just, this article about churches, and this article about churches, I had a stack as high as my head, and I just couldn't figure out what I was going to say. They're just, uh, you know, I mean, there must be, must have been 3,000 articles that I read. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to make of it. So I was just, I was like, I don't know. And my director just said, keep reading, just keep reading, slog through it until you figure it out. So I was like, okay. And then I was in the shower and all of a sudden, Eureka. boom, 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 boom. The five chapters just came to me in a moment. It just I call it like a super saturated solution. You know what that is? Well, uh, a solution that is more of a solution, so much of a solution <laughs> that it's a problem. Well, it's a chemistry thing. Oh, where no, they, then I don't know. They heat water, to, you know, the, when a, something dissolves in water, like salt or sugar, it actually goes into the spaces between the molecules of the water. And so it can hold a certain amount, but then after those spaces are full, then the salt just goes to the bottom of the glass. Oh, yeah. If you heat the water, the, the space between the molecules goes farther apart, so it can hold more. And then when it cools down, they, they fall out. They just come out and land at the bottom. And so it's a super saturated solution, but you drop one more grain of salt in and it all goes and it all falls out. So my brain was so overheated with all these articles that it was like a super saturated solution. And That's then pretty deep. that one day in the shower, I just had one more grain of salt, one more thought and one, two, three, four, five, boom. After that, I went through every article again and I marked in the upper right corner, seven day a week church. Uh, skyscraper church, uh, whatever, and then put them in piles and started writing. And from then on, it was just a question of getting her done. And after like a, two pots of coffee, you were able to write the whole book? No, I didn't drink coffee then. Oh, really? I never drank coffee till I don't know, fairly recently. Yeah, I think I started drinking, when I started drinking coffee, it was probably like shortly 
in maybe my senior year of college or shortly after, but it was always like the flavored stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like the lattes or whatever. The girly but, stuff? Yeah, the girly yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, start with that and then get to the stronger stuff later, so. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, that's some of the story of my doctoral dissertation. I would do it again in a minute, though. Gosh, I loved doing that. If somebody gave me two years and said, do research and write, I would do it. Wasn't that what your sabbatical was for? That was only two and a half months. <laughs> you can't do too much in two and a half months. Well, uh, I hope you get the opportunity to do more writing because it sounds like that's something that you want to do. Me too. Well, also, we want to make some more videos. We want to make an architecture video, uh, church architecture, called Formed in Fashion. So yes. hopefully we can put that out in the next couple of years. But. Oh, oh. Total change of subject. Sure. In case he ever listens to this and ever listens to the end of this podcast. All right. We talked uh, about a story called about debts to art. Do you remember this? Death to art? No, debts to art. Deaths, oh, debts to art. That's, oh, that's yes. Art. Yes, yes. Well, I erroneously gave credit for that story to Scott Harder. Mm-hmm. And the story was that they went to the Chicago Art Institute and there was a room full of stuff lying around, right. drop cloths and aluminum stuff and whatever. And someone said, oh, is this, is this gallery open? Because they thought it was under renovation. And the guard said, no, that's the art. <laughs> right? So it actually was not Scott Harder's story. It was Father Dan Folvachny of Chicago, oh, who okay. saw me several times recently and said, I'm not speaking to you. And I said, why? And he said, because you didn't give me credit. It sounds like a Scott Harder story, though. Well, he told me the story, Scott Harder, Father Scott Harder, but okay. he got it from Father got Dan. Got it. So, Father Dan Folvachny of Chicago, I give you your due footnote <laughs> here, and now please speak to me again. Well, that's excellent. All right, Dennis. Can we talk more about my dissertation? Come yeah, on. What, well, what, wait, what were the chapters again? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Bowling art, bowling churches. Yeah, bowling alleys. Uh, Jazz churches. Churches in the pits of despair. Yeah, anger, yeah, anger, <laughs> no, was it? Anxiety, guilt, and despair. Okay, no. got okay. it. All right. Well, Coffee oh, talk. Oh. You know why we're doing this episode, by the way? Why are we doing this? Well, you and I know why we're doing it. Uh, we got sure. snowed in today. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's nice, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we got like uh, seven or eight inches of snow, and we're supposed to get another like five or six. Nobody's here. It's just yeah. you and me, babe. So I was like, hey, let's do a podcast. Because why not? Because I like talking about nothing. Yeah, Although this was a little something this time. It was a little We need song. a Coffee Talk song. Can we give away a t-shirt if somebody does a Coffee Talk theme song for us? Uh, yeah, if you create... Yeah, because it's a special thing. It's not like a, it's not like a regular Liturgy Guys podcast. So right. we, we should actually have a different intro. Right, because we sing talks. our little L-I-T-U-R-G-Y. Mm-hmm. Now it's time for the Liturgy Guys. Right. Or, so if you have a C O F F E E T A L K, yeah. If you have, if coffee you want to write or create an uh, intro, yeah, use GarageBand or something, yeah, whatever. Uh, then you'll get a T-shirt and a pint glass. Wow, you'll get both because that's to me a lot of work. It's you're gonna need a place to put the beer. Maybe we can give uh, another T-shirt. So two friends. Okay. So two, wait, two people? Maybe we can give a full two-year scholarship to no. the liturgical <laughs> No, 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 no. I mean, I can't, I can't approve of that. <laughs> I can't either. But, but, uh, but write an intro or create an intro for our Coffee Talk episodes, and then we will be forever grateful, and we will bestow upon you many gifts. Real yes. gifts. Yes. All right. Dennis. Jesse. I got to go to the bathroom. I, <laughs> I had too much coffee. Okay, well, <laughs> hope everything comes out all right. <laughs> 
The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.